I should probably get over here. Aaron asked me this morning to read 2 Samuel 10. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Sometime later, the king of of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanan concerning his father. However, when they arrived to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leader said to Hanan, their lord, just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, and demolish it? So Hanan took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. When this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them, since they were deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, then return. When the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David, they hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans, of Bethrehob to Zobah, 1,000 men from the king of Maacah, and 12,000 from Tob. David heard about it and sent, to, and sent Joab and all the elite troops. The Ammonites marched out and lined up in the battle formation at the entrance of the city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were in the field by themselves. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him and another behind him, He chose some of Israel's finest young men and lined up in formation to engage the Arameans. He placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abshai. They lined up in formation to engage the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come help you. Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for the people, for our people, and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Joab and his troops advanced to the fight, the Arameans, uh, fight against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they too fled before Abishai had entered into the city. So Joab withdrew from the attack against the Ammonites and went to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer sent messengers to the Arameans who were beyond the Euphrates River, and they came to Helam of Shobak, commander of Hadadezer's army, while leading them. When this was reported to David, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans lined up to engage David in battle and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their, chariots, uh, of their charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, commander of their army, who died there. When all the kings who were Hadadezer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became their subjects. After this, the Arameans were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. People often say that we live in a post-Christian culture. Maybe you've heard that term before or heard people talk about it, heard some, uh, you know, some smart people talking about post-Christian culture and what it means and 
but yeah, what does it mean? Because we, we, we throw that word around, but we don't really consider what it means and then get to, and then based off of that, say something meaningful about what it then, the relevance of that is to our lives as Christians. But living in a post-Christian culture, uh, as we have today in America and in the West more generally, means that whereas before in our society there was what, uh, one of my favorite thinkers was a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer called it, there was once a Christian consensus. What he meant by that is that it wasn't a true Christian society. It was not something, it was not a theocracy. It was not something where every single person and every single leader in society was a committed believer, follower of Christ. Yet there was a, a general consistent consensus and agreement on the values of Christianity and of the truths of the Christian worldview, even if the, those individuals were not uh, wholeheartedly committed to it personally. This is the culture that we used to have in the West and even in America from the, the founding uh, up, up until the past few decades. We had a Christian consensus, and along with it, uh, this consensus came a privileged place for the church and for Christianity in the culture. However, as our culture has moved more and more religiously pluralistic, and as it has moved more and more secular, trying to uh, rem, uh, you know, kind of get rid of or move on from that former Christian consensus, Christianity, ha- along with that, has lost its privileged place in our culture. So that now we must learn how to operate more on the margins of our culture and especially uh, working as a marginalized group in the power dynamics of our culture. So the question is, if this is the case for us now as Christians today, living in a post-Christian culture, how do we live righteously in such a culture? How do we follow Christ? What does it mean for us? What does it look like? And we often make this the answer to this question is so much more difficult than it needs to be. We wring our hands and we philosophize and we come up with, you know, all these different take, uh, takes and think pieces and so on. And, you know, there's this really great resource uh, that gives us tons of examples of how the people of God live in a culture that's hostile to them in the Bible. Because in both the Old Testament and for the vast majority of the Old Testament, we're reading about stories of people who are following God in cultures that did not have a, uh, shall we say, Yahweh consensus. And in the New Testament, we're looking at believers who are living in a world which is not post-Christian, but pre-Christian, we might say, where the attributes are quite similar. They were living on the margins of society in terms of cultural power, societal power, and influence. And they had to learn what it meant to follow God in a culture which was uh, sometimes either hostile to them or uh, didn't trust them, misunderstood them, and so on. We've got all these examples in the Bible. We usually make it so much more complicated than we need to. Instead of just looking and saying, what did, what did they do? How did they live? And here we have this story with David coming into conflict once again with the surrounding nations. In a sense, Israel, which was comparatively extremely small uh, in, in terms of power and size uh, in comparison to the nations around them, is living in the midst of a hostile culture in uh, the geopolitical time and place that they were in. And so looking at David and his conflicts with the Ammonites uh, primarily in this passage, but also the Arameans who team up with them, we can actually learn some things that are quite relevant to our daily life and what it means for us to live out 
a life that is faithful to the gospel, that is obedient to Jesus Christ as Lord, and a culture which does not want to follow Christ as Lord. So, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the nation's rage. The nation's rage. Then we're going to look at the king's kindness. And then lastly, the warrior's hope. So the nation's rage, the king's kindness, and the warrior's hope. All right? So, let's start. Matt read the story for us already, but you know, I just want to make sure that we all grasp what's going on there. It's easy for us to kind of get lost in all the unique names and context of what's going on here. So, um, let me put it this way. Do you know anyone who has a knack for taking a bad situation and making it worse? You know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who's, got, who's really good at taking a good situation and turning it into a bad one? You know, there's some people who just, like, that's, that's their thing. That's what they're good at. They come into a situation and they're like, let me make this worse, right? You know, I think, I think, I think our, our politicians in DC are all Ammonites. They're, they're people like, they're like, there's nothing, there's no problem in society they can't walk up to and say, let me make this a little bit worse for you, right? That's what the Ammonites do in this passage. They have a situation which is, it's honestly, it's not a bad, even a bad situation. It's a good one. There's nothing really uh, that they need to be worried about. What happened was, is that the king of the Ammonites died. And now his son has, uh, his predecessor, no, his son wouldn't be his predecessor, has succeeded him in the throne. Now, it was customary back then for nations which were on, at least somewhat on peaceful terms with one another, to, uh, for the king of a nearby nation to send a delegation, uh, to mourn whenever a, a regent would die, right? So the, the king of the Ammonites died, and David says, you know, I want to show kindness to them. This was somewhat of a formality. There would have been other people doing it, but David also seems sincere. He, because he says, I want to show kindness to Hanun, the, the son of this king who had died. Um, the word kindness that he uses there is hesed. Okay, that might sound familiar. Uh, pin that in your mind. We're going to get back to that. He says, I want to show kindness to him. He's, and he says, hesed to him. He said, because of his father. So it was a formality, but David also seems sincere. He wants to show that he mourns Hanun's father's death. So he sends a delegation. And Ammonites being Ammonites... You know, we know some, like I said, we all know some Ammonites in our life. They take a situation that should have been good and they make it bad. Because this delegation comes in and Hanun is surrounded by some nincompoops. <laughs> and they say to him, they're like, oh, don't you trust this, David? You really think he's sending them in here to, uh, uh, to, to just mourn your father's death? He's sending those delegations in here to take us over. Now, you, like, once again, you just got to think, like, these guys were not the best and brightest in foreign policy, right? Because number one, they're worried uh, that this delegation is just like a, a prelude for war. So they say, uh, you know, so they're worried about David. They're suspicious of him. So they're like, so let's just poke David in the eye, right? They make it even worse. They, they guarantee that David is now going to go to war with him because what they do is, is they take David's kindness and they return it with vileness, they take his kindness, right, his sincerity, and they return it with vileness. Now, we look at this episode here, and if we kind of zoom out from just what's happening, happening in 2 Samuel chapter 10 to the broader, to the rest of the Old Testament, and especially to a really, really key psalm, we can see that what's happening here is sort of an episodic version of Psalm chapter 2. 
In Psalm chapter 2, which is one of the Psalms of David, David wrote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. They say, let's tear off our chain, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. You read that psalm and it sounds quite similar, like it sounds like a description of what is happening in real time for David. The nations literally begun, begin to plot together. It says that the Ammonites, after they poke David in the eye, then hire all these soldiers and they partner with the Arameans and they get some soldiers from another uh, king to get ready to go to war with him. They're conspiring together. All these nations say, all right, we're going after David together now. What's happening here, and, what we, and if we see this story through the lenses of Psalm chapter 2, we see not only are they conspiring against David, but what does it say in Psalm chapter 2? Against the Lord and his anointed one. So in the episode of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, the anointed one will be David. He's the anointed king. But what David recognizes in in his theology from Psalm chapter 2 is that the nations do not just rage against him, but their, their conspiring is also against the Lord who anointed him, and who made him king. We saw this similarly back before my sabbatical when we were going through this series. In other chapters, we saw this theme play out as well, how the nations will rage against the rule of God. They will resist it. They will rebel against it. They will conspire against the rule of God and plot in vain. And we see that happening once again here. And so our first point is this. The kings of the earth resist the kindness of the Lord. The kings of the earth resist the kindness of the Lord. After all, what did David intend on doing? What was his, what was his heart? What was he trying to show them? He was not conspiring against them. He was not plotting their ruin, their downfall. He did not have catastrophe in mind for them. He was trying to show them kindness. He was trying to show them kindness, and they returned that kindness, like I said before, with vileness. And it is the, that is the same way that the kings of the earth and even uh, the, 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 the Ammonites and Arameans of our world today respond to the heart of God, which intends to show them kindness. Okay, so think about this. You are, you're a Christian. You have been following the Lord. You have been saved by his grace. He has given you a new heart. Now that he has given you a new heart, which is drawn to the things of the Lord and who loves him and who sees him for who he truly is, what have you experienced from God? Nothing but kindness. You learn that, the, that our Lord's heart is, is marked by, and we can call it one that is a heart of kindness. Even in his wrath against sin, he intends for us to turn away from sin so that we might receive and experience his kindness. God's intention towards the nations, God's intentions toward the kings of the earth, God's intentions towards the, the politicians in D.C., his, uh, towards the politicians in Baton Rouge, towards the Arameans and Ammonites in Acadiana. His intention towards them as well is that they would turn from their sin and become recipients of his kindness. But what do they do in return? Rebel. Resist conspire, exchange God's kindness for vileness. You see, even the early church 
recognized these dynamics at work whenever they experienced persecution and opposition to the kingdom of God in their day. Like I said, we don't have to make living in a post-Christian culture uh, all that complicated. We just need to see what these guys did, how they understood it. Listen to what the, the early church said. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter uh, and, and some of the other apostles had been arrested, had been beaten by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they returned, and it says in chapter 4 that they, they told them everything that had happened. And when they heard this, so this is speaking of the first church, the Christian community, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? You see, in the midst of them experiencing opposition, they, once again, ah, they understood what was really going on. They went back to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, was Jesus with them in this moment, physically? No. This was after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But they interpret the moment as what? Opposition to Jesus. There's a lesson for us. In any persecution... In any resistance and conspiring and, and opposition that we experience to the church, to the kingdom of God today, we must understand at the root, at the bottom of it, it is not culture wars. It is not politics. It is not even just um, the, the marketplace of ideas at work. It is a spiritual battle against the Lord and his Messiah, Jesus. If sinners if Gentiles or Ammonites and Arameans could be still fighting against Jesus even after his ascension then, they're doing the same thing now. The kings of the earth resist the kindness of God. But here's what we need to see. It's so, I mean, you can't help but love David, right? He's just, he's cool, right? David is awesome. He, he crushes his enemies every time he goes out there. You know, I mean, he's like, he's like John Wayne, but even better. Like he's just, he's just, he wins. He's awesome. They conspire against him and they lose. How great is that? They get together. They hire all these soldiers. I mean, like this is a big battle, right? This wasn't a little skirmish. 20,000 just that they had hired in addition to their own army. Multiple nations come together. And it doesn't say anything about David sending out thousands. It says he sends a general and his elite troops. And then they go and they, they get it started, and then he comes in and cleans up shop. They conspire and they lose. And here's the thing. They will always lose. That's what we need to note. What is truly happening? Resistance to the Lord. And what is the end for those who resist the Lord? They will lose. So what this means for us is that we must persevere in our post-Christian culture, in confidence. 
I think there's a typo in it. It shouldn't say in the confidence. It's just in confidence. Um, persevere in our post-Christian culture in confidence. We have confidence to, to persevere because we know the end for Ammonites and Arameans, those, and those who resist the kindness of the Lord and the kindness of his rule, that they will lose. And so even today, whenever we might feel marginalized in our culture, as it feels as though the, uh, the, the workings of where our society is going, where our, uh, where our culture is going, where our government is going, where policies are going, or anything else. Whenever it feels as though all those things might be going against us, we have no reason to despair. It's okay to lament, but we do not despair. It's okay to be concerned, but we're not overcome with worry. Because we know what the end is for those who resist the Lord. They lose. We're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God which is eternal, which will advance no matter how much the nations rage and the people's plot, as David said, in vain. So we have this confidence, but with this confidence, what we do is, is we, we go on doing the work that we ought to do, doing kingdom work, obeying God, following after God, not laying down in the fight, but continuing in the fight against the Ammonites and the Arameans. So we persevere in the confidence that we have. We recognize that in spite of all the hostility and resistance to God's kingdom, his enemies will be defeated. And so we have this assurance to go on and continue to face adversity in a post-Christian culture. This is how we persevere. You see, what makes perseverance different from endurance is this. In a sense, they are both going on. They are continuing. But perseverance is endurance plus assurance. Is the endurance to go on plus the assurance of what we are hoping for will be fulfilled. The assurance, the confidence that we have in the promises of God that we know we can place our trust in. So when we have endurance plus assurance, we can persevere. So persevere. Now let's look at the king's kindness. Like I said before, David says at the beginning of this chapter that, that the guy, the former Ammonite king passes away, and he says, I want to show kindness to them. And the Hebrew word that he uses there is hesed. Now, if you were with us last week, that word hesed might ring a bell for you. That was a key word, a, a crucial word to understanding 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you weren't here with us last week, just go back and l- listen to that sermon. Hesed is what David uh, said when he said that he wanted to show kindness to the house of Saul and, and specifically to Mephibosheth that he showed kindness to. But he, that word that he's using there, kindness, is stronger and more nuanced than what we typically mean by kindness. For us, Often in the way that we use it today, kindness is kind of just like a synonym for being nice, uh, but it meant a lot more than that for whenever David used it. What he was talking about was a kind of, uh, of generosity, of goodness, and of blessing that you would show to somebody in loyalty to a covenant. It was a covenantal term that he used when he said said. He was trying to show them uh, loving kindness. You might see that word in Scripture sometimes. When it says in the Psalms, we are surrounded by the loving kindness of the Lord. Or, or Paul talks about the loving kindness of our God. This is the covenantal love that is expressed in God's blessing and goodness upon our life. So in the previous chapter, David says, I want to show kindness 
to the house of Saul. Is there anyone left? They find Mephibosheth, and he shows him kindness. Here, death comes in the house of the kings and the Ammonites, and David says that he wants to show kindness, has said to them as well. It's interesting whenever we take these two chapters, which both seem to raise up Hesed as a as a key theme, and we put them together. Because in chapter 9, what we see, as we saw last week, is David showing kindness, Hesed, to the house of Saul, showing Hesed to Israelites. But now in chapter 10, he's continuing to do kindness, but now to those who are outside of Israel. Isn't that interesting? He he shows kindness to those both in the house and outside the house, in the nation and outside, to the Israelites and to the Gentiles. Whenever we take these two chapters and we, and we bring them together, what they're presenting to us is David as the Hesed-doing king. Not only to Israelites, but to the Gentiles, to the nations as well. And David in these chapters, and whenever he's at his best, is intended to point us forward to the ultimate David, to the ultimate king, who is Jesus Christ. And so when we see David as the Hesed doing king, what is to teach us is this, that our king, Jesus, rules to show his kindness to his people. Our king rules to show his kindness to his people. Monarchs of the earth rule for their own glory. They rule to increase their own power, to increase their own wealth. They rule because they have a lust for control, to make a name for themselves. But our King Jesus rules to show kindness. As it said in Philippians chapter 2, our King Jesus did not accept his commission from God the Father in order to make his own great. But it says he took what could have been his, equality with God, and laid it aside in order to take on the form of a servant. And he humiliated himself to become, to take on the form of a servant, but even more than that, to the point of a servant's death, which was crucifixion. And why? So that through his death, his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, we might receive the hesed of God, his loving kindness and his goodness poured out upon us as we are forgiven of our sins redeemed and brought into his household. Our king reigns. He rules. He holds all power, but not to make a name for himself, but to show kindness to his people. Not because he has a lust for control, but to pour down blessings on those who live under his rule. We are the beneficiaries of his loving kindness He shows his kindness to us while we are his enemies so that we might be led to repentance. This is what Paul reminded the Christians of in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, don't you remember that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? What does this mean for us as we try to live it out? What it means that our king reigns to show his kindness is that we who are his subjects... And we who, uh, who, who live as his subjects and also in order to uh, be molded into people who look more like our king, we ought to show kindness to those who are in the household of God and to the Ammonites in our post-Christian culture. 
we are to be people who live to show kindness as well. In whatever places God has, has, has put you, in your career, in your home, where you, where you live, and it's whatever degree you have power, God has given you some authority, whether it be, once again, authority in your home, whether it be authority over uh, people that work for you, people, or, or in any other sense. He has given you that authority. He has given you those positions. He has put you in those places so that you might be a vice regent, so that you might be uh, a, a, like a, 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 uh, someone who shows the kindness of our king to those people so that through his kindness they might also be led to repentance. We do this among the household of God. We have many exhortations in the New Testament that we are to be showing kindness to one another as brothers and sisters. But if we were to take David's example and Jesus' example, we show kindness not only to those in our household, but also to the Ammonites. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, Listen to what Paul says, for one another and for all. Or consider what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you, you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors who do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We as well are to show kindness. As God the Father shows his kindness in, in, in the sun shining and bringing the rain that, that brings life, to the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil, showing his kindness to them as we see David showing kindness to the house of Saul and to the Ammonites. We as well are called by our king to show kindness to those who are are, uh, members in the family of the faith, but also those who are outside the household. So we persevere. We persevere and we show kindness to those in our post-Christian culture. But we might think, surely there are battles to fight. There are times whenever we intend to show kindness, but we have to show kindness through waging spiritual warfare. We show kindness through defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and through advocating and communicating and arguing for the goodness of the Christian worldview and the absolute truth of God's word in the Bible. And so we say, well, then what do we do in these moments? How, how, do we, how do we show kindness? Because to us, it sounds like you can't show kindness and both wield the sword, right? As uh, Paul writes about in Ephesians, where he talks about spiritual uh, armor, right? You know, so, so how do we do both these things? Aren't there still battles to fight? Isn't there still the kingdom of God to be defended and to be advanced as the nations rage in vain? Well, yes. And here's where we learn about that. We read, we can learn about that by reading this short speech from uh, David's general, Joab, in this chapter. There's this massive battle that happens in this chapter, right? Whenever they go out in battle formation, they have the Am- Ammonites in front of them and the Arameans behind them. And they, 
they set up, there's tension, and you're kind of just waiting for like this great description of what goes down in the battle. But all the narrator says to us is that they fled, David showed up, they won. He doesn't give us any of the kind of fun details that we were looking for. And how David wins, it's, it's very short, it's terse, it's concise. But the narrator does slow down to tell us what Joab said. He thinks it's important. What Joab said in verses 11 and 12 seemed to be very important to the narrator of this story. Let me reread what Joab said. They're surrounded by the enemy, and so here's what he says to his brother, uh, Abishai. He said, if the Aramans are too strong for me, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come to help you. Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Be strong. Go into the battle. Prove yourself strong. And leave the outcome to God. That's what he said. In this story, we have all these, these little pieces that we can look at that, that give us reflections. And, and they, they shine some light forward to something even greater than the story itself. Right? Whenever we look at how the nations rage against David, we see these reflections and light pointing us forward to Jesus. And how the nations uh, uh, raged against Jesus in his crucifixion, and they still do to, his, to this day. And the reflection of David's kindness shown, we see it pointing forward to Jesus, who is, our, who is our good king who shows kindness to those that he rules over. And even here in Joab's speech, we, if we look closely, we can see a little reflection that points some light forward. And once again, that light points us forward to Jesus. Because Jesus was a man who, in the face of, uh, of the, the great battle set before him, proved himself strong, and left the outcome to God. Before his crucifixion, whenever the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles and Pontius Pilate and Herod and, and the whole world, sin and devil itself, were conspiring against him, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was before him, and he goes and he prays to his father about this cup that was about to be his to drink. He prays to the Lord, and he says, I, I would not have this. Would you take it from me? Nevertheless, your will be done. What was Jesus doing in that moment? In that moment, he had this. He had a mission. He had a battle placed before him by God the Father. He was surrounded by Ammonites and Arameans, and he was called by God to go to war with them. But in this war, his outcome would not be like David's. His outcome would be death. In going to war, he would defeat the enemy, but he would defeat the enemy through his own death. Now, what did he have to trust God with, to leave in God's hands, that the Father would accept his sacrifice and raise him from the grave? And so he trembles and he sweats. And he says, not my will, but yours. He proved himself strong for us. In his suffering and in his sweating and in his bleeding, he did not fail. He remained righteous. He remained obedient all the way to the grave, leaving the rest in his father's hands. 
our king proved himself strong and entrusted himself to God's will on the cross. As Joab said, let's prove ourselves strong and may the Lord's will be done. We can see the same spirit in in our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he goes to the cross. And now, if you are his... If you're someone who has received the redemption, the, the blessings of redemption that was accomplished in his work, your sins have been forgiven, you're in the household of God, you have your name on a seat at his table, you are now called to join him in, in living out that same kind of life, in, uh, in persevering, and in showing kindness, and whenever we are surrounded by Ammonites, and we are called to defend, and we are called to advance, we obey him. We are called to the same kind of resolve. So where do we end and what do we see in this story? The last thing I want us to to take away is this. Be strong and may the Lord's will be done. Be strong and may the Lord's will be done. And whatever battles are placed before you in your life today, you might be going through some battles right now. You might be going through storms right now that the Lord has led you into and is disorienting. Maybe it's scary, but yet... He's with you there, and he has led you there, and he has a calling for you there. He has a fight for you there. He's got the outcome. He may not have told you what the outcome is. He might have told you exactly how he's going to get you to the outcome, but he's told you this, be strong. It's reminiscent for me of the Israelites who had been, of the Jews who were defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and then taken up out of their home and brought to Babylon as exiles. They sat there in the city, and what they did at first was they didn't make themselves at home. They just kind of waited around because they thought that they were going to be out of there in no time, that God was going to step in and rescue them and take them, uh, take them out of the situation back to their home. But instead, in Jeremiah 29, God sends a letter to them through the prophet Jeremiah. And he says to them, listen, I have plans for you. I have plans for a future for you and for a hope that you can place your heart in. But he doesn't tell him what it is. He says, I have plans, and that should be enough. Now, here's what I want you to do in the meantime. So often in our life, that's what God tells us. He says, I've got a plan. I've got it. I know how this is going to work out. You need to attend to what's right in front of you. You know, I talk to people so often who are wrestling with decisions in their lives. And, and for so many of you guys, you know, who, who are in um, stages of your life where you're making transitions, you're making choices to uh, trying to figure out uh, trajectories for your life, or you're considering your calling from God. And we so often overcomplicate it because we get so wrapped up and we, in a sense, start to get paralyzed wondering, I'm going through this, this situation. Or I'm trying to make this decision about school or about career or where I should live or what direction I should go in. And I just, I'm not sure what God wants. And then you kind of just get stuck there because of that. Or you're going through a situation, maybe it's not so much about making positive steps in your life, but it's just, it's a bad situation. Maybe relationally, it's a bad situation with your family, with some other important relationships in your life. Maybe it's your career. There's some things that are making it really rocky right now. You're praying to the Lord that he brings some deliverance. And you know whenever you read the scriptures that he has a good plan for you, that he has nothing but kindness to show you. But right now in this situation, you feel like those Jews in Babylon. Like, all I've got to go on right now is that promise. 
And we get stuck there because we think, I can't move forward unless he shows me how his promise is going to play out. But here's what we need to understand. So, so, so often, God gives us the promise, and he says, just knowing that I have the plans, just knowing that I've got it under control should be enough for you. And if we just accept that, then, and then look at, okay, well, what's right in front of me in my life right now? In my obligations with work, with school, with my family, and recognize, okay, he's got it. It's in his hands. It's under his control. I need to be strong in where he's putting me for now. Be strong. Show yourself strong for the people of God and in the cities of God. And then may his will be done. Don't let what is the unknown which is exactly how God is going to work out whatever situation you're in, prevents you from doing what you know you ought to do. Our job is to do what he has called us to do and leave the rest in his hands, trusting in his promises. So therefore, be strong, friends. Be strong. Fulfill the obligations that God has put in your life right now. Don't overcomplicate it, and don't get paralyzed by the unknown for all the things that you do know that he has placed before you and that he desires for you right now. There are many things that you know if you just, like I said before, stop overcomplicating it that you know that he has called for you to do right now, that he wants you to do, the ways that you can obey him and glorify him right now. And whenever we go into the battles in our, in our world, in our post-Christian culture, against the Ammonites and the Arameans, and we're not sure how it's going to work out, and we're afraid that we're going to lose at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because we know that God promises that his kingdom will win, even if we don't see the victory in the short term. And so what are we called to do in that moment? We are called to be strong and, and then say, and may the Lord's will be done. My hope today is that you would be inspired to endeavor to be strong on the Lord's behalf. I think we often weaken the gospel by, and, and make, people, make ourselves assume that God only wants us weak. Don't get me wrong. As we talked about last week, his warm heart is drawn to the sinners and to the sufferers. He, it brings him joy to accept the crippled and the weak. But guys, he intends to take the crippled and turn them into marathon, Olympic marathoners. He intends to take the weak and make them strong. He intends to take the sinners and make them righteous. So yes, he, it brings him joy to accept you in your weakness. And in the times that you stumble, even though you're a Christian and you feel as though you have uh, soiled yourself with sin once again. It brings him joy again to to forgive, to continue to cover you in his grace by the blood of Christ and receive you. But with that comes transformation. It is not dishonoring God to endeavor great things on his behalf and to have ambition to be strong in what he has called you to. May we be audacious enough to have ambitions which attempt great things to prove ourselves strong for the Lord and for his kingdom. Not needing the validation of anyone else or even the validations of the results to say that our efforts were worth it. 
because we can say, may the Lord's will be done. Let's pray. Lord, it would be easier to say that we exiles in Babylon ought to just sit on our hands and wait until we're taken out, until we're delivered. But Father, instead, you give us the calling and commission to do the work that you have placed before us, trusting that you will bring the results. Like Joab and Abishai going to war in battle with the Ammonites and the Arameans, not knowing how it's going to turn out, looking at the circumstances and understanding that the odds are not in our favor. But saying, nevertheless, let us prove ourselves strong for the kingdom of God and leave the rest in your hands. Father, make us those kind of people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, cleansed and washed and made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Endeavor great things for the sake of your kingdom in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in schools, in workplaces, and in Acadiana. And at the end of the day, in our victories and in our losses, in our joys and in our sorrows, may we all say to the glory of our King. And we pray this in our King's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.